Hey y'all, thanks for tuning in to this week's recording of Redeemer Church of Knoxville's Sunday Sermon. We're really glad to have you with us because we know that there are a million different podcasts that you could be listening to right now. So we're thankful that you've chosen to spend some of your day with us. We hope that this recording will be an encouragement to you and that God, by his spirit, will use his word to remind you of Jesus' love. If you would like to reach out to us, we would love to hear from you. To do that, please email us at office at redeemerknoxville.org. We also want to give a quick thank you shout out to Evie Andrus and Parker Green, who you hear playing our awesome intro and outro music here each week. Lastly, if you'd like to support Redeemer and her mission to Urban and University Knoxville, please visit www.redeemerknoxville.org and look for the little give button in the top right corner. Thank you so much, and here is this week's sermon. Well, if you have a Bible and you'd like to follow along with me, you can do so by turning to Joshua chapter 8. We're going to... Is this on? Yeah, it's on. Uh, we're, going to be looking, okay, we're going to be looking together at Joshua chapter 8, verses 30 through 35. You can follow along with me in the Bible that you brought. You can follow along with me in the Pew Bible that might be in front of you. You can follow along with me in your smartphone Bible. Uh, there are plenty of ways you can follow along, and it's also been provided free of charge in your bulletin. If you'd like to follow along there, you can do that as well. Uh, my name is Sean Slate. I'm the pastor here, and we are so glad to have you with us this morning because we know that there are a million different things that you could be doing this morning with your time. For instance, you could be getting ready for the TSSAA golf championships that are over in Sevierville, and today is the practice round, so you could be out hitting those golf balls. Uh, You could also be with RUF at their fall conference, Volcon, where you could be at home recouping from the weekend's women's event, the staycation, or you could be putting on your later hosen and heading out to Schultzbrow, but you're not doing it because it's Oktoberfest. Uh, anyway, uh, but you're not doing any of those things. You're here and it's really great uh, to have you with us. And the reality is that there really is nothing better that you could do with your time than worship Jesus, uh, consider his claims upon your life and think about the beauty and the kindness of his salvation. And so I really do want to thank you for joining us this morning. Welcome to Redeemer. What is Redeemer? Well, Redeemer is a church. And what that means is that we're a community of people who are trying to learn how to love God and we're trying to learn how to love our neighbor. And fundamentally, what we believe is that Jesus is God, he's the Messiah, and he's entered into the world uh, to die for our sins and to reveal the love of the Father. And so every week as his people, we gather together in his name to worship him so that we might learn to rest in the love that God has for us in Christ. And as we rest in his love, we then become a people who love to get together in community. We love to play golf together. We love to put on our lederhosen together. But we really love uh, to read the Bible and pray together so that we can remind each other of the great love that God has for us in Jesus. And as we rest in his love and as we remind each other of his love, we then become a people who delight to gather together in service so that together we might reflect the love of God to our family, to our friends, to our neighbors who are here in Urban and University of Knoxville. And hopefully in some way it would spill out into the entire earth, right? That's who we are. We're people who are trying to learn how to love God, trying to learn how to love our neighbor as we rest, as we remind, and as we uh, reflect. And so to help us do that, we're in this series that we've entitled Great is His Faithfulness, Reflections on the Book of Joshua. And just as we've said each week, uh, this is a hard book. I mean, it's tough, it's complicated, and it is a book that's filled with failure. It's a book filled with hopes and expectations. It's a book filled with conflict and war and judgment and anger. And we've looked at many of those things. And uh, what some of us feel as we come to this book is it feels so culturally distant, and some of us might say it feels so Old Testament. 
But what I hope for each of us is that as we go through this series and as we look at this book week by week by week, what we'll see over and over and over again is that God is faithful. That God is faithful. That's the point of Joshua. That's the point of the Bible. That God is faithful. And so this morning what I want us to consider is the faithfulness of God as our covenant God. All right, The faithfulness of God as our covenant God. So with that in mind, let's look together. Joshua chapter 8 verses 30 through 35. At that time, Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, on Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the people of Israel. As it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones upon which no man has wielded an iron tool. And they offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. And there in the presence of the people of Israel, he wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. And all Israel, sojourner as well as native born, with their elders and officers and their judges, stood on opposite sides of the ark before the Levitical priest who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord. Uh, Half of them in front of Mount Gerizim and half of them in front of Mount Ebal. Just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded at the first to bless the people of Israel. And afterward, he read all the words of the law, the blessing, and the curse, according to all that is written in the book of the law. Uh, There was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel, and the women, and the little ones, and the sojourners who lived among them. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me now for the teaching? Heavenly Father, we are thankful uh, for this, your word, that you're a God not hidden, uh, nor are you silent, but you're one who delights uh, to reveal yourself to us. And so it's our prayer now uh, that as we attend unto your word, that in your kindness and in your mercy, you, by your spirit, would attend unto us, uh, that we might see lovely, beautiful things of your faithfulness to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, as Christians, uh, we talk a lot about having a relationship with God, right? Uh, But what does that mean? What is that relationship with God really like? What is it all about? And it seems to me that many of us relate to God, uh, as Jacques Ellul might say, uh, as a technique. That God's a technique to get the things that you want, any of you men who are in our book reading group, if you're reading Seculosity, this is what Dave Zoll calls Seculosity. And what this means is that we relate to God as a means to an end, right? We tend to relate to God as a means to an end. And so as Chance the Rapper says, as the blessings go up, right, the blessings come down. We bless him in order uh, to be blessed. And for many of us, uh, God just becomes this technique. He's this tool that we use to get the blessings that we already desire, And I think that this is kind of the way we function in the world, not just with God, but in the world itself. I mean, so think about it this way. Imagine yourself sitting on your front porch in your porch swing with your children and you're reading a book to them. And someone came up to you and they said, well, why are you reading? Why are you sitting on the porch reading a book? I mean, you could be doing so many other things. What are you doing? Why would you do this with your children? You could say, well, I mean, studies show that uh, children whose parents read to them uh, do better in school and... uh, succeed in life. And so what's happening there is that spending time with your children and reading a good book with your children is just a technique uh, for something else. But isn't sitting on your porch 
reading a book with your children good in and of itself? Isn't, isn't that enough? Or, or, or spending time with people just a technique to get something else? And surely I hope that we can live in a world where reading and spending time with people isn't just a means to an end. And that's the way it is with God. Uh, God isn't intending to show us that he's a means to an end. He's the blessing itself. That, that God isn't just a way to get life that you want. God is life itself. And I think that this is important for us to keep in mind, especially as we come to a passage like this, because we can easily come to this passage and see a technique for getting blessing. We come to this passage, right? There are these two mountains. Verse 30, there's Mount Ebal, the mountain of cursing. Verse 33, there's Mount Gerizim, the mountain of blessing. And as you look at Mount Ebal, there the curses are red for disobedience. As you look at Mount Gerizim, the blessings are red for obedience. And it would be easy to think, I want the blessing, not the cursing. And the way to get the blessing is to obey. And sadly, I think that this is how many of us think about Christianity, or at least it's how we talk about Christianity, right? Be bad, get cursed. Be good, get blessed. But when we think about our Christian life, or when we think about our life with God in this way, what we see is that the motivating factor for life with God is all about avoiding and achieving. But here's my question. Where is God in all of that avoiding and in all of that achieving? Because isn't Christianity, surely Christianity is more than just avoiding and more than just achieving. Because isn't Christianity fundamentally about God before it's ever about any of us? I grew up watching Mr. Rogers, as many of you did, and Mr. Rogers used to say, when I was a boy, I would see scary things in the news, and my mother would say to me, look for the helpers. Look for the helpers. And I think that this is really helpful advice for us as Christians as well, because when we think about the world, when we think about ourselves, when we think about the Bible, what are you looking for? What are you looking for? As Christians, we look for God. And this is really important for us to consider because if y'all are anything like me, your tendency is to read the Bible and think about the world and look for yourself or to look for the next best thing. But the key of Christianity is that we look for God. And so as we come to this text, I want to try to help you see him. And I think this is important because it's really hard to see him in this passage because the cursing and the blessing are so loud. And so uh, here's what's happening. Joshua leads the people of Israel to this valley uh, between these two mountains. There's Mount Ebal in the north, there's Mount Gerizim in the south, and there's this sort of valley in between them. And he leads his people up to this valley outside of this town called Shechem. And the purpose of gathering his people together, he gathers all his people, right? Not just some select people. You notice he gathered all the people. He gathered young and old, men and women, rich and poor, leaders and laymen, ethnic Jews and 
sojourners. And a sojourner would have been a Gentile, someone like Rahab or any of the other Canaanites in the land who'd heard and seen of the power and the glory and the beauty of God. And they said, I'm with him. And he gathers them all to come to this little valley. And this valley is about maybe a mile, maybe two miles across. And with the mountains there, it gathers and makes this perfect amphitheater. And what I want you to notice is that right in the center of everything, right in the center of all the people, is verse 33, the Ark of the Covenant. The presence, the very presence of God, the promise of his faithfulness. And this is important because the center of this entire event is God himself. It is not the curses. It is not the blessing. It is God And God has gathered his people there. He's invited them to come into his presence. He said, I want you to stop. I want you to pause in the midst of all of your busyness, in the midst of all of your success, in the midst of all of your sorrows, in the midst of all of your failure. And I want you to come and I want you to be reminded that you belong to me. And everything that you have is a gift that has come from my hand. Now, now why would he gather them in this valley? I mean, they could have gathered anywhere, but why this valley? Well, this valley is very significant in the history of Israel because this is the place where God first made a promise to a man named Abraham. The way the story goes in Genesis chapter 12 is that God came to Abraham and said, leave your country and your kindred and your father's house and go to the land that I will show you and I will make you a great nation and I will bless and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. So Abraham followed God and he led him into the land of Canaan. And as they went into the land of Canaan, that promised land, do you know where he brought him? He brought him to a place called Shechem, to the oak of Morah. And there at Shechem, God said to Abraham, to your offspring, I will give this land. This is amazing. Because what's happening here is that this valley is the very place where God first made the promise to give the children of Abraham the land. And now they enter into the land and God leads them back to the very place of promise as if to say, see, I told you I would do this. Do you see I'm faithful to everything that I have said to you? I'm giving you this land. I am your God and you are my people just like I had promised. Do you see the significance of this moment in this place? They've entered the land and they're, they're fighting and they're winning, they're fighting and they're losing like they did last week at the Battle of Ai. And then they're faithful and they're unfaithful. They have these cities to, to claim. They have this kingdom to build. And he says, before you move on, I want you to stop. I want you to come and I want you to be with me. I want you to rest in my promises. I want you to remember that I have given you these things as you go out to fill the land. 
This is really important because uh, what we need to see here is that when God calls us to himself, he actually calls us to himself. He's not calling us to himself just to go do things, just to go get some stuff done. He calls us to himself so that we would know his love, so that we know his faithfulness, so that we know his kindness. If you ever read any of the ancient myths of the ancient Near Eastern gods, they created human beings to do the things they didn't want to do. They created human beings just to kind of play with them, just to make them suffer. That's why the gods of the ancient Near East uh, made humanity, but not Yahweh, not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible created his people, made his people in order to dwell with his people so that his people might know him and love him and serve him out of that love. But there are these blessings and curses. And what are those blessings and curses all about? So again, think about the setting. There they are in this valley, and to the north uh, sits the Mount of Cursing. To the south sits the Mount of Blessing. And I want you to notice in verse 32, And there in the presence of the people of Israel, he wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. So what they do is there's this stone, they, 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 they take this stone, they find this stone, they plaster it, they write the entire covenant of God on this stone. Right? And the reason that they're doing this is because God had told them to do it back in Deuteronomy chapter 27 before they entered into the land. But what was the purpose of doing it? Well, the purpose of doing this was to sort of lay down the law of the land, if you will. The purpose of doing this is so that when you entered into the land, when you came through this valley, it would say, this is how we do things around here. If you live this way, there is blessing. And if you live this way, there is cursing. That's the law of the land. Now, there are two really important things for us to consider about this event. And the first is the order of events. Okay, this is very important. I want you to notice the order of events. First, what happens is that God calls his people to himself. And then he tells them how to live. And this is very important because God doesn't first tell us how to live and then make us his people if we're good enough. He first says, you are my people, therefore this is how you are to live. And this is really important because often we think about obedience as the way we become God's people. But obedience is the way of being God's people. It is how we live out of love for our Father. You see, obedience is about being God's people. And a common way we could say this is we don't obey to get loved. We obey because we're already loved. The second thing that I want you to notice is the curses. Now, it'd be really easy for us to read this passage and think, oh, God's just petty. God's just mean. He's just uh, wanting to, like, strike everything down. But when you hear the curses read aloud, uh, I think few of us would disagree with them. If you go back and you read Deuteronomy 27, 28, 29, 30, if you just read them aloud, I think most of us would agree. Listen to some of these. Cursed be the man who makes a carved or cast metal image, an abomination to the Lord, a thing made by hands of a craftsman, and sets it up in secret. 
Cursed be anyone who makes a false god. You think, oh, it's no big deal. It's just a false god. It's just fake. It's just a lie. It's not a big deal. Just let everybody go on. But if you think about this, what he's saying is cursed be anyone who worships uh, the work of their own hands. Cursed be anyone who worships the work of their own hands. And so when we worship false gods, there's no life in it. And if you worship the things that you do, have you ever done enough? If you worship your work, you never know when to finish. You never know how to stop. You never know if it's good enough. And that's a curse. It leaves you empty. It leaves you afraid. But not only that, if you worship money and stuff, and every week you go to the stuff mart for more stuff, you're always going to feel like you don't have enough. You're always going to feel like you need more. If you worship your body and your beauty, what you begin to realize is that time can be mean. And it has been meaner to some of us than it has been to others of us. And we're not going to name names or point fingers today, right? Uh, and if we worship uh, our beauty, uh, we know that it leaves us feeling ugly. If you worship relationships, great things like relationships, it will always leave you lonely, if you worship power, it will always make you feel weak. If you worship being smart, you're always going to be afraid of those things that you do not know. And this is a curse. Because it does not lead to life. It leads to anxiety and to insecurity. And then he goes on, curse be anyone who moves his neighbor's landmark. It's like, curse be anyone who moves the boundaries of someone's land. If you've ever watched Yellowstone, you get shot for things like this. You get taken to the train station for things like this, right? Curse be anyone who perverts justice. Curse be anyone who lies with his father's wife. Curse be anyone who lies with an animal. Curse be anyone who lies with his sister. Curse be anyone who lies with his mother-in-law. Curse be anyone who strikes down his neighbor in secret. Curse be anyone who takes a bribe and sheds innocent blood. Curse be anyone who does not conform to the words of this law by doing them. And here's my point. These cursings are cursings because these ways actually lead to death. They actually pervert justice. They actually promote violence. They actually take advantage of the poor and the vulnerable. And they destroy society. And they do not reflect the character of a God who is merciful and compassionate and kind. Who uh, feeds the poor and heals the sick and welcomes the orphan and frees the slave. And then if you think about just the Ten Commandments, no idols, no images, no taking the Lord's name in vain, uh, you should rest, don't disobey your mom and dad, no murder, no adultery, no stealing, no lying, no coveting. And if we think about this, as Christians, even we would say, yeah, that would be a pretty good existence. That would be a nice society to live in. And when we disobey any of these words, it, does it not bring sorrow? Does it not bring disappointment? Does it not destroy societies? And what God is saying is this. He's saying, look, the way of disobedience, the way of these curses actually leads to death. It actually leads to cursing. And that should not be the way of my people. Why should the way of cursing not be the way of God's people because God's people 
we're called out by him to be a blessing. He's saying, do not walk in the ways of the curse because you were made and called to be a people of blessing. And so he says, listen to my voice. And if you read through the passage, it's amazing. You'll see he mentions the word of God, verse 31, 32, 34, 35. He mentions it over and over again. And what I want you to see is that the people of God are to listen to the voice of God uh, because it's God's voice. You can think about it this way. If my wife Jennifer were to ask me to bring home a box of chocolates for her and I brought home a bag of Sour Patch Kids, I would be cursed, right? And I would deserve it, right? And uh, her voice matters. And her voice matters because it reflects her heart, it reflects her, it reflects the things that she loves. And so in order for me to love her, I must learn to listen to her. Here's the point. God's words are not merely a list of do's and don'ts. God's word is not just a list of rules and laws that we can check off and be done with. When would we ever be finished loving him? We listen to his voice. And we obey his word as a response of love to the one who has loved us. Here's the problem. You and I know, as, if you're a Christian, I think you would agree with me that, that God's law is good. And I think most of us would say we shouldn't lie, cheat, or steal. We shouldn't hurt one another. Uh, and we know that a society built on truth and built on love is the best kind of society. But that has not stopped us from lying, cheating, or stealing. We know what is good and we do not do it. And when we do not do that which we know to be good, does it not bring a curse? Upon us? Do we not know the shame? Do we not know the guilt? Do we not know the disappointments that we've caused? And so, what is it that we're supposed to do with that? I want you to notice that God had Joshua build the gospel into the mountain of cursing. Look at verse 30. At that time, Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, on Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the people of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones upon which no man has wielded an iron tool. And they offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. Now, this is amazing because there's no altar on the mountain of blessing, but there's an altar on the mountain of of cursing. And that altar was made of stones that were untouched by human hands, as if to say, we do not come to God by the work of our hands. We come to God by what he supplies. And so on this altar, they then offered these burnt uh, sacrifices, these burnt offerings. And the burnt offering was the offering of an animal in our place to bear the curse for us so that we might be forgiven. And so as you look at the burnt offerings, what you're seeing is that the animal is taking the curse that we deserved. And then that animal, as it is being sacrificed, is fully consumed. 
And when the animal is fully consumed by the fire, the curse is gone. As if to say, it is done. And you are forgiven. And so now imagine you're at this event and the curses are being read. And as they're being read, you're, you're hearing them and you think, guilty. Uh, guilty again. Uh, guilty again. What do you do? You look to the altar. You look to the sacrifice. And here's the point that's happening here is that God wants to silence the curses. And this is really huge because God is providing the sacrifice for the curse that we deserve. And so, in a sense, what's happening is that as the curses are being read, God is saying, don't sin, don't sin, don't sin, don't sin. But if you do, look to the sacrifice. It's really amazing because what's really happening here is that this is a physical, tangible manifestation of 1 John chapter 2. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. And what this is saying is don't sin, don't sin, don't sin. But if you do, God's provided a sacrifice. And that sacrifice is Jesus, the one who bore the curse for our sins. Now, this is really important for many of us to hear because for many of us, the loudest thing that we hear are the curses. The loudest thing you hear are the curses. And so when you think about your life and when you think about God, all you hear is him cursing you saying, you're not good enough, you're not smart enough, you don't do enough, you're not disciplined enough, you're a failure, what is wrong with you, why are you so weak, why are you so embarrassing, get it right, shape up, or I will get you. That is the curse that you are hearing over and over again, and the reason the curses are screaming at you is because you are unwilling to look to the sacrifice. Please listen to me. The curses are real. And that is really why Jesus died. Because he was cursed for us. And because he was cursed for us, he no longer speaks curses to his people. In fact, he says, when you hear the curse, turn and look to the altar. Because he has silenced them. But it wasn't just this burnt offering that was being offered. I want you to notice as well that he offered this peace offering. And a peace offering is really different from a burnt offering. And a peace offering is a, a joyful offering that confirms that God is at peace with us. And so when the burnt offering has been made and it says you're forgiven, our tendency is to think, okay, I'm back at zero. Now I gotta be good, good, good until he gets me. But what the peace offering is saying is come and feast with me. You are mine. You are loved by me. 
The curses are silenced. Do you see this? And the blessings are beginning to flow as the Father feeds us. And many of you need to hear this because the, dom the dominant voice that you think that you hear from God is do better. Do not mess up again. And what you think is that God just tolerates you and puts up with you. The peace offering tells you something different. The peace offering says God is at peace with you. And he loves you and he wants to feast with you. And all of his blessings are for you. And so what I, begin, what I hope you're beginning to see is that our relationship with God is personal. And by that, I don't mean private. By personal, what I mean is that God, as a person, actually wants to relate to you. He knows you. He leads you. He is faithful to you. Because he loves you. And this personal nature of God is seen uh, more clearly if you'll allow me to zoom out from this story for a few minutes. I think it's pretty cool. You might too. So when you think about it, uh, we see these two mountains and uh, at the foot of each of these mountains, there are thousands of people, right? And then right in the middle of all those people is the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant is the symbol of God's presence and his faithful love for us. And so what's happening at this event is that the curses are being read out over the valley as if to fall down upon the ark. And then what's happening from the Mount of Blessings, the blessings are being read out as if to fall down upon the ark. The ark is taking the blessings. The ark is giving the blessings. Now fast forward with me into John chapter 4 and we're in the New Testament. And there in John chapter 4, Jesus is going through this area uh, called Samaria. And he comes to this town called Sychar. And the town of Sychar is near uh, that field that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And it was there in that area that Jacob uh, built, uh, uh, dug his well. Now what's really interesting is that another name for Sychar is Shechem. So this is fascinating. So Jesus goes to the very same place that Joshua brought the people of God so that they might hear the blessings and the curses from God. And you might remember that when they gather there at Shechem, they gather there at the well, uh, Jesus sees this woman there at the well. We know her as the woman at the well. And, uh, and he asks this woman for a drink of water. And the woman says to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for water from a woman, a Sumerian like me, and Jesus says, well, if you knew who it is that is asking, you'd have asked me for water, and I would give you living water, streams of living water that will refresh and give life and blessing to you. You remember the story as they began to talk, Jesus begins to reveal this woman's thirst, and here's a woman who's been married five times. Uh, she's living with a man who's not her husband. Uh, and in a sense, this is a woman whose life really had been cursed. I mean, she'd loved and she'd lost. Uh, she'd failed. She'd been unfaithful. Uh, she's lonely. She's thirsty. She comes uh, at the wrong hour of the day. She comes by herself and she's longing for blessing. And where is it that this woman seeks to find blessing? She's been looking for blessing in the arms of men. She's been looking for blessing in the attention of other men. 
And over and over again, as she's seeking this blessing, she finds herself tired and thirsty and alone. We might say cursed. And as they talk, it begins to get a little too vulnerable. It begins to get a little bit too intimate. And she begins to change the subject. And she says, uh, Jesus, you know that our fathers worshipped on uh, this mountain. Do you know where she was pointing? To Mount Gerizim. The mountain of blessing. Because everyone wants to be blessed. And then she says, you know, the Jews, they say that Jerusalem is the place where the people ought to worship. And so basically what's going on here, she's asking this question, uh, where does blessing come from? Does blessing come from Gerizim or does it come from the sacrifices at Jerusalem? And Jesus says, no, it doesn't come from a mountain. It comes from me. And this is absolutely amazing because what's happening in that moment is that Jesus is standing there at the well of Jacob in between, you know, just outside of Shechem, in between Mount Ebal and in between Mount Gerizim. He's standing in the very same place where those curses fell upon the ark and where the blessings fell upon the ark. And he's saying, I'm the ark. I'm that golden box in human form. And the curses will fall upon me. And so does his blessing. So that through me, his blessings might flow out to all of my people. That's the point of the cross, right? That there the cross, uh, the curse fell upon Jesus. There on the cross, Jesus was cursed in our place. He, he is that sacrifice. He's that burnt offering for us. We lied. He was cursed. We have stolen, and he was cursed. We have been unjust, and he was cursed. We love money more than we love God, and he was cursed. We've ignored God's word and followed our own. And he was cursed. We have not loved our neighbors as we love ourselves. And he was cursed. And we have all given ourselves to false lovers. And he was cursed. Another way you think about this is the way Paul sums it up. It's beautiful, it's amazing. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, he says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is anyone who, hang, who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, listen to this, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. Jesus became the curse so that God's blessing might come to us. As we look at this passage, where is God? He is everywhere. He is everywhere. He was cursed so that we might be blessed. Those curses that we are so afraid of, they have fallen upon him. And his blessings now flow through him to his people. 
And this ought to now free us to be a new people. A people no longer paralyzed by the fear of the curse. A people no longer striving to achieve his blessing. Because it's finished. The curses are done. The curse has been silenced. And the blessings are secured. There is no reason for fear. There is no reason to achieve. It is complete in Christ himself. And so he says, look to me. I am the one that holds all of this together. And it is in me that the curses flow as we sing at Christmas. As far as the curse is found. And that's exactly what this table is all about. Because as we come to this table, we see the body and the blood of Jesus, which have silenced the curse of God. That body and blood that reminds us that Jesus is both the sin offering and he is the peace offering. And he says, you can come to me because you are forgiven. But not only that, I want you to come to me because you are loved. And come and feast upon me. You don't come to this table avoiding. You don't come to this table trying to achieve anything. You come to be with him. Because he is enough. And so I invite you to come and to eat.